Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today we'll be talking about China's increasing dominance over the global cosmetics industry. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Nicole Fool, Head of Trends at Asian Consumer Intelligence, and Louis Houdard, CEO of Creative Capital. Welcome all. So if there's one thing that was abundantly clear from the results we saw at the end of 2019, it was that China's become a make or break market for many global cosmetics companies. Can we start by talking about the market size? Where does it stand in the world rankings? Its growth? Nicole, would you like to start with that? Sure. So, I mean, China's obviously, it's a country of uh, superlatives. Um, I don't think there's a day that goes by now without some sort of headline uh, proclaiming its growth, especially in personal care and beauty. And I think for us, you know, as a, a strategic consultancy where we help brands innovate or launch into the market, the market research companies supply the big figures. But what we're always looking for is meaning and context to those. And uh, and often, you know, just it's just the numbers are so big that kind of uh, getting your head around them is just difficult enough. I mean, for example, you know, upper middle class household population will rise at a CAGR of 28% from 2018 to 2025. And that will mean taking the total number of people in China earning between $2,600 and $3,900 per month per household to 350 million people in China. Um, and, uh, And China's affluent class, households earning above 3,900 per month will almost triple to 65 million people during that same time period. So it's just growth, growth, growth. And those numbers are reflected across, you know, the different categories. For example, um, Spa China estimated that China's beauty and wellness market, and this is back in 2017, I couldn't get a a newer number, was worth $14.5 billion. So yeah, big numbers. And in terms of the world rankings, I mean, last year it was predicted to become the number one, but didn't quite make it over the line. It's still second to US, am I right? Louis, do you have figures on that? I, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think I think you're right. And to uh, build up on, uh, on the previous comment, I mean, definitely numbers in China are all about superlative, which means also it's amazing how to see how niche brands are becoming Incredibly big in China. Obviously, if you are niche in Luxembourg, I mean, you you can you are just very small. But, but in China, you see some small players like uh, local brands like Afu, uh, who started uh, uh, online on uh, Tmall, who became the leading uh, niche uh, essence oil brand on Tmall, and now they have around 600 store offline, which in China is actually a medium-sized brand. Wow. And so let's talk a little bit about what categories are driving growth, because it's also a market where categories that are considered more niche in the West can thrive. Male beauty is is one, for example. Let's talk a little bit about what is the popular product categories in China. Uh, Nicole, do you want to start us off? I mean, skincare is obviously the dominant category. It's also the fastest growing in personal care, and it will obviously remain that way. Well, I say obviously, it should remain that way for quite some time. I think it's uh, a sort of high 60, 70% of skincare. After that, we see obviously cosmetics, which have grown, you know, and I think we've seen all the trends, but, you know, uh, women and, uh, and men, of course, using cosmetics because, you know, sort of cheap and cheerful way of, you know, um, standing out and, and looking that much better for your selfies. And then after that, obviously, we see, you know, hair care and body care after that, which are slightly more niche, but 
within those categories, natural is actually growing. So while some of those categories are a little bit mature, natural within them is really accelerating. Louis, do you want to add to that? So a couple of categories that we see on the ground uh, being extremely dynamic, definitely everything linked to organic and bio and, and clean beauty is growing. Uh, local brands have been traditionally uh, very big in terms of volume. Uh, I think they're also becoming big in terms of uh, uh, touching the heart of uh, consumers. Uh, we see it also through lots of very interesting crossover between different brands and including a lot of uh, brands not coming from the uh, cosmetic category. So a couple of months ago, uh, some uh, Chinese lip balm uh, brand did an amazing crossover with White Rabbit, which is a, a historical candy brand from Shanghai. Uh, and a couple of uh, days ago, uh, everywhere on the social network was a, a crossover of the brand uh, Tiger Balm uh, doing some uh, eyeshadow. So crossover are very, very big. Um, another interesting uh, product category trend that we see are um, single uh, products uh, which are going through uh, direct marketing. Uh, there is a, a brand called Legend uh, only selling uh, lipstick, one lipstick balm online through lots of followers online uh, who sell to their friends through WeChat, through uh, live streaming, through, uh, and, and these also single-use uh, products are, are, are becoming also very big. And then there is probably another last category, which I think is interesting to uh, notice, are KOL brands. So, so, so basically, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like, like what we see in the, in the US with uh, the Kardashian and, and different, or uh, Rihanna. Uh, this is also happening in China with some uh, local celebrities uh, starting to uh, launch uh, their brands with, with their own uh, commercial success. So that brings us to marketing. Um, there is a high reliance on word of mouth and peer-to-peer -peer reviews. So influencer content, for example, is crucial here, as you said. How can brands looking to break into the Chinese market spread the word? Is it crucial to have key opinion leaders and co-branding, for example? Nicole, do you want to start us off? I think it's a really tricky topic because It sounds like a, a lazy consultancy when we kind of say, listen, if you don't really employ some form of um, KOL model in your marketing, then you're going to fail. But unfortunately, um, the market is just so homogenous with that regard that it's almost uh, no other way will work currently um, unless you really sort of have a form of network um, for consumers to, you know, uh, tap into and listen to and, and find advice on products. I mean, just the way that the consumer um, starts her purchasing journey, you know, at some point along this, you know, this experience and this journey, I mean, very, very quickly, you know, if a, if a consumer is looking for something new, she might go to a voice-activated device or she might search online, but inevitably straight away she will then turn to little web book to then look for reputable KOLs in this area who can actually, you know, provide some information on brands or even advice on some of the troubles or, or issues to kind of learn about. So the whole KOL, the best way to think about it is almost multi-level marketing. You have, you know, super KOLs and then you have, you know, tiers below that. Um, but at some point in the journey, pretty much every single consumer comes into contact with them. So they're absolutely fundamental. Louis, anything to add on that? First, I have to say I hate KOL. <laughs> I mean, they, um, they are um, extremely painful in the sense that uh, first, they have lots of them have very little brand loyalty. I mean, 
uh, definitely you need them and, and they are very important in the uh, in the china in the china picture but they also create uh, uh, a lot of uh, very dangerous situation i think the, uh, what happened to fan bingbing uh, a year and a half ago was a good uh, illustration of uh, um, first, lots of money invested in celebrity, and then suddenly this celebrity uh, uh, burst away. Uh, the second issue is a lot of the very famous KOL are um, lots of the big brands and the smaller brands are going after them. So if you are a L'Oreal or Nestle Lauder, uh, obviously you 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 remain uh, top of mind. But if you are a much smaller brand and you invest all your money in the KOL, it's very hard to. Uh, actually create a retention. What I find very interesting today on, on a new opportunity for niche brand is also the evolution of, uh, of the younger consumers who themselves want to be perceived by their friends or small KOL or uh, 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 KOC. And, and therefore, they, they actually leave... Um, I mean, they used to, and they still an amazing market for the big mainstream brands, but today there's also a very fast-growing market for unknown brand with strong concept and younger consumers that will take pictures of this brand that hopefully their friends don't know. And because it's a cool brand with a cool packaging and an interesting storyline, they will get a heart uh, on their WeChat uh, post and get the, the dopamine. Uh, so, so there's actually, um, uh, I think, the, uh, a very fast-growing trends of uh, interesting brands growing quickly, spending less money on, uh, uh, on KOL. And that brings us to the consumer. Who is the typical Chinese beauty buyer and what are they buying? Nicole, again, do you want to start us off? The typical Chinese beauty buyer is surprisingly younger than you'd expect. So when we uh, look at um, demographics on who's purchasing um, and, you know, kind of put that into meaning or, or context for perhaps our international clients, um, often women overseas who are looking at a luxury or, you know, um, high-end skincare would start looking at a product at that, you know, in the West, um, sort of 30 above. But in China, literally that same consumer would be 18 and above. So Gen Z has become um, phenomenally, you know, important for international brands and obviously, you know, um, the generation above millennials or post-90s in China is, you know, the kind of key group. So whenever we're kind of putting together any work, what we're really sort of saying to our clients is really should be studying 18 to 35-year-old women. Um, they're well-educated. They spend on themselves. They have all of their income. They see themselves as an investment and a priority to spend their money on um, versus 35-year-olds plus who are a little bit more conservative in consumption. So generally speaking, um, your demographic is younger, wealthier, willing to invest, and um, and that kind of cuts across also for urban males too. And Louis, it's obviously very difficult to uh, uh, summarize the Chinese consumers because the market is just so big and so diverse, and, and therefore there's many different clusters. And I think a lot of them have been uh, covered. They are younger than in the Western world. They are also probably a little bit less loyal, um, and they usually want something uh, uh, different from their parents. Uh, and, and, and men is a very interesting category, also uh, growing very quickly, obviously starting uh, uh, from very small, but with uh, urban consumers who are uh, very daring, actually, in, uh, in the use of the products. Which brings us to concerns and characteristics. Are there particular products that are a priority for Chinese consumers, for example, anti-pollution protection, that sort of thing? Uh, Nicole, do you want to start? 
Some of the um, big standout trends that we've seen that resonate with Chinese consumers are um, around 70% of consumers cite ingredients are the main determiner in purchasing more natural goods. Um, and around 65% are worried about the negative impact of artificial ingredients. So you have a consumer who's highly educated, very savvy and willing to spare. And uh, within that, super concerned about, obviously, the environmental issues. Um, you know, anti-aging plays a huge part. Um, it's a culture where youth is very much celebrated. And, um, and trying to remain, you know, 18 in terms of your looks is key, um, sad to say. And so what you know, consumers are actually striving for are products that will help them, you know, fight off the environmental issues, um, keep them younger, but also from a natural perspective, um, not just provide, you know, uh, reassurance that they're going to be putting products on their skin, which are hopefully less harmful, but also um, that they're going to actually work as well. So it's not just the consumers, you know, sold into the idea of natural and not really doing their homework. They want products that, you know, there is real science behind it. Um, so, you know, that's some of the trends that we see in that area. And Louis? Yes, um, skincare definitely more than color. Skincare is definitely very, very important. Uh, Anti-aging, uh, as you just mentioned, is very important. Uh, color, having said that, color is growing very quickly. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, traction, a lot of uh, brands, including uh, uh, Chinese brands, uh, developing uh, color cosmetic brands. Um, and uh, perfume, still a super niche category, but uh, with a double-digit growth and a very exciting um, uh, product category. Right now, it's still mostly actually for gifting purpose, uh, but uh, I think a category to, uh, worth to uh, look at. One to watch. And uh, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but let's talk about local brands, because while the likes of L'Oreal and Lauder have seen great growth in this market, Chinese consumers are increasingly looking local, aren't they? Nicole, do you want to start us? Who are the players to watch? Do you think that we'll see a spate of M&A? Yeah, I mean, domestic brands um, have been growing. That's been driven by a couple of factors. Obviously, you know, um, trade wars aside and, uh, you know, a sense of, well, let's support our local economy has driven that. Also price. Um, and then obviously from the other side, you know, the R&D has got to a point where local brands are just seen as, you know, far more trustworthy than they were in the past. Um, so that tends to happen a lot with, obviously, the mass brands and uh, body care and hair care, where people um, are not so worried about experimenting with local brands. So, you know, brands like uh, Peshawin have just grown enormously and so much so that they have, you know, um, now overtaken some of the international brands. And uh, some of this has been driven by you know, live streaming, where consumers literally, um, you know, for Taobao's 618, which is a sort of a, a half-year festival held in the mid-year, um, that was a real opportunity for a lot of domestic brands, as well as foreign brands, to really clear their stock. Um, and that's where a lot of these brands really started performing quite well. And then, obviously, once you have, you know, the influencers and the gurus and actually satisfied customers, that has a knock-on effect um, for some of that growth. So, yeah, local brands, um, Perfect Diary is a great example of that. Um, it's a cosmetic brand. Um, it's now surpassed uh, L'Oreal in terms of sales volume um, to become the number one cosmetic brand on Timor. That was uh, a while back. Um, had a lot of followers on um, Little Red Book. And, you know, literally it's because of their uh, collaborations with, you know, KOLs to launch perfumes, um, as well as obviously, you know, um, lipsticks are just so popular, usually sold by male influencers. Um, and yeah, so, you know, 
uh, local consumers are more than happy to buy these brands. And Louis? Yeah, Pechouin, as you just mentioned, been doing a, an amazing job. Uh, it's one of the oldest cosmetic brands uh, from China. And last two years or year and a half has been resonating a lot with the Chinese consumer. Uh, groups like Chic Max that owns brands like Kans uh, uh, or One Leaf, which are uh, Chinese brands, but a little bit of uh, a Korean uh, inspiration, have been um, very fast growth last year, uh, probably a little bit uh, harder this year. Then there is some interesting uh, cosmetic, uh, Chinese cosmetic brand like InnoHerb or Herborist uh, who are uh, playing in the territory of uh, uh, Chinese uh, medicine, uh, which I think is also a very interesting um, uh, space to look, uh, uh, to look at because uh, uh, obviously when, you f when we think about uh, Chinese history, uh, the Chinese medicine uh, is a very interesting category and there's probably a lot of uh, great things to do in the, uh, in the cosmetic there. And talking of Herborist, because that's uh, one of the brands that is uh, stocked in Sephora, for example, historically was certainly. Will Sea Beauty catch on in the West per K Beauty? Is it has it got the potential to do that? Does it have a distinct identity of its own? I don't see why not. Um, I mean, if we had uh, spoken about you know K Beauty, you know, going beyond its borders. Um, and hitting the West in the way that it has sort of 10 years ago, I think people are like, no, no, that's just crazy. But there's no reason why Sea Beauty can't do the same. Chinese manufacturers have learned what consumers are looking for. They're understanding that they have to differentiate from what Japanese players and Korean players are doing. And within that kind of create their own niche, uh, which is probably a focus on, you know, um, part natural, part efficacy, and from there, you know, get the marketing right. And bearing in mind, if we look at sort of, you know, what is happening in marketing, everyone's looking at China now and realizing that, you know, the, uh, the tail is now wagging the dog. So from that regard, um, if China can, you know, reinvent and show the West how marketing is done, there's absolutely no reason why it can't do the same with cosmetics. We talk a lot about K-beauty and G-beauty, and we're starting to talk about C-beauty. To me, these words, in a way, are not very... Uh, doesn't mean much. I mean, what does K-beauty mean? I think what Korean has been very smart at doing, they've been very smart at building concepts. So if you look at, uh, um, let's say, in his free, Amore Pacific is staring the tale of Jeju Island. Uh, it's kind of a modern contemporary. And then Sulwasu is staring the tale of uh, the uh, uh, old historical uh, empire of, uh, of uh, Seoul. Um, in China, Chinese brands are starting to be relevant already in the Western world in fashion. Uh, you, you see a great success like uh, Icicle, who just opened an 800 square meter uh, a store in Paris. And it's, it's an anti-Shanghai Tang, in a way, if I may say. So it's not a, a China made of red, uh, dragon and jade, jade, but it's a contemporary China made of uh, the usage of contemporary Chinese uh, materials, such as uh, silk, but not in red with raw material or bamboo, uh, but not uh, uh, lac uh, bamboo, uh, na natural bamboo. And it's today having a lot of press uh, in the Western world uh, since they opened this uh, very big flagship on uh, Anne Georges V in Paris. So, so therefore, I think it's all about to find the right narrative uh, um, for uh, beauty. One of the challenges, which I think is, is going to be overcome quite uh, soon, is probably still the perception from the Western world that uh, lots of product coming from China are of uh, 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 low quality and people have this perception of China also uh, being a big uh, source of pollution, which is actually changing quite a lot. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in, uh, I live half of my time in, in Shanghai and the level of pollution 
have decreased drastically in, uh, in China. And same uh, quality-wise, obviously, you find amazing product of great quality in China. So, so definitely, Sea Beauty and, and a, a great Chinese brand with the right narrative will be at one point uh, meaningful uh, in other markets. Let's turn to retail because Chinese shoppers have a very unique way of shopping, don't they? They have WeChat, Tmall, live streaming. They've really embraced the digital channel, perhaps as a consequence of the, the, the youth, the average age of, of the shopper. Uh, can you talk us through that a little bit? Penetration rates of, of digital are, are way higher in, uh, in China than they are in the US or UK, for example, aren't they? When we think about China and when you think about retail, uh, online, offline, for, I think, a Chinese millennial, it's all the same. And I think it's what uh, Jack Ma, founder of Alibaba, has been really dis- uh, describing as new retail. Their life is about finding the best experience, whether it's offline or online. And they really mixed both of them. And therefore, uh, they will uh, go offline when there is interesting product, interesting experience in stores, and, and uh, try to find the same uh, experience and conveniency uh, online. So we see Plenty of different channels from uh, uh, Douyin from, uh, on the online, from Douyin for uh, live streaming to Pinduoduo uh, for uh, group buying in the uh, low end to uh, a Little Red Book, which is um, a mix of, uh, ins- it's basically an Instagram with uh, uh, commercial purpose uh, to, of course, WeChat, which is uh, today uh, the main uh, tool uh, to do pretty much anything in China. Cool. Anything to add? With regards to online shopping, everyone's mobile, everyone's shopping online. Not really sure I can add much more um, to what Louis said other than it's just going to keep going in that direction. And uh, as more consumers get online uh, than ever, you know, it's and obviously with the, you know, the, the idea of the super apps where people are, you know, within one environment and encouraged to, you know, stay on those super apps. There's absolutely no reason why that will change. So, you know, it's mobile first, it's digital first. And even, you know, when we're doing projects nowadays, just trying to recruit people who shop in shops, um, real, you know, those real things that stand in the street um, has actually started to become a challenge. You know, it's almost like, um, no, we only shop online. So, yeah, that's very representative of our typical consumer nowadays. And we said right at the start of this discussion that China's all about the superlatives. Can it keep that up? Is the growth sustainable? What What do the next five years hold for the Chinese cosmetics market? Um, Nicole, do you want to predict? Mm, predict. Okay. All right. So, um, yes, I'm going <laughs> to put my neck on the line and say it will continue to grow um, only because, you know, when we kind of look at uh, what's happening, you know, with, uh, you know, many, many years ago, um, when we first started doing all this, it was always about the tier one cities, and it was a tier two, and then it's a tier three, and, and so on and so forth. And quite frankly, you know, there are more cities, I, I don't know, have the numbers in front of me, but cities we've never heard of have significant numbers of consumers who have large amounts of disposable income. And in many regards, uh, these consumers almost have more disposable income because they're not living in these expensive cities. So in terms of growth, yeah, absolutely for the foreseeable future. Um, not really, um, you know, getting exact numbers there, but um, our prediction is, yes, this will continue to be the case. And if anything, 
and obviously in the past when we looked at sort of trying to segment consumers, this is before the, the rise of, you know, the democratisation of digital, you know, it was always very much, oh, here's our urban consumer, they're well informed and they have more money. Um, but those are the old days. Um, you know, everyone has an even playing field. They're all, um, you know, can all access the same information. They can shop from the same channels and they can receive their delivery just as fast as those people in the big cities. And that will continue to grow. So if anything, you know, what we see for our clients or just, you know, um, the big uh, beauty companies in general is just that challenge of just trying to, you know, remain on point, um, but also to segment their message as much as possible for the world's most populous country. And then, you know, Louis touched on it earlier where it's very hard to say here is your single consumer because it is just so diverse. Louis, is there still room for growth in China? Will it continue to dominate the results charts? Definitely. I mean, uh, there is so many tier three, tier four cities who are still completely uh, untapped. Um, I think probably the difference between today and, let's say, five years ago is today you need to be really good. Uh, I mean, I think five, six years ago, average brands could come to China uh, and say, uh, this is a Louis brand, Milano, Paris, uh, uh, Milano, France, and be, be successful. Consumers are very aware, are very sophisticated. Uh, are very uh, well informed and, and the brand has to have a strong concept, need to be meaningful and, and then uh, definitely I think the sky, the sky is the limit. So, so yeah, uh, still a very nice next ride for me for the next uh, couple of years. And in all categories, I mean from uh, uh, um, luxury to, to low end actually. Thank you. I'd like to thank everyone for taking part today. Thank you Nicole and Louis and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Goodbye. Goodbye.